Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Robert Seaman, who is the president and CEO of NextGen Wood Protection. NextGen has a management team that has more than 60 years of history in the lumber, pressure treating, and chemical industries in Canada. And their products are used throughout the world. Robert, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to talk with you, Tex. Yeah. So, Robert, tell me more about your background. Well, I am third-generation lumber guy. My grandfather started a whole bunch of sawmill operations in northern Ontario back in the 1940s. My father took over the family business in the mid-80s. And, of course, that was my teen year, so I was bound and determined never to have anything to do with lumber. (laughs) And lo and behold, all these years later, I basically took over the, the family business and we changed direction into from pressure treatment, from the standard pressure treatment side of things, into this new age of technology, which has, of course, affected the way wood is protected. And we're hopefully at the forefront of that right now. So was that change natural or did you have to do a lot of convincing? Oh, it's, it takes a lot of convincing. Whenever you introduce something, a, a new paradigm into an established industry, it's it takes a while. It takes a while for it to really grab hold and, and to get any kind of a foundation underneath it. You need to have partners who are forward-thinking like you are, and hopefully they can work with you to, to develop the market. Because really, when we, when we brought NextGen to the market, there was nothing like it, and there isn't really anything like it in the market still today. So it's, it's all about finding the right people that you can work with around the world who share the same vision wanting to make things better, wanting to do things in a new way that other people haven't thought of. With the, with the rise of the mass timber side of things, it's kind of been a blessing for us. The timing couldn't have been any better. Yeah, for sure. So you've been at this for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you sort of wish you knew when you first started? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if I could go back and talk to my, my former self. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think the, the thing that I would probably want to say to myself back then is you have to be patient. I didn't realize, I guess, going into it, how difficult it would be to convince people. One of the problems with our product, and it it sounds like it really is a double-edged sword, is that our product protects wood from fire, from mold, from rot, and from insects. And those are the really the four things that anybody building with wood has, has concerns about. So our product right from the get-go sounded too good to be true. And when you have something that is just, you believe in fully, you understand the concept, you understand how it works, and you know that it's a good thing, but then you go to somebody else and they look at it and they think, well, that's impossible. No one product can do all of that and eco-friendly and all that kind of good stuff. So you have to test, and you have to retest, and you have to test again, and you have to prove to everybody on every possible substrate that, yes, the product does work. The product, the claims match what, what's in the tin. And I guess that's the one thing, because it's very frustrating when you're trying to enter markets and 
you know that the product works, but you have to get other people to believe as well. And it does take a lot of time. It takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of patience, which I guess I just didn't have as much of back then. <laughs> so you talked about testing because that's one of the things that in our company, we talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the beginning, you, you're, you're trying to test different things and to get some of the baseline tests. But I mean, currently, like, how do you prioritize if you're going to do a test or not? Because it's hard to know if that test is going to achieve the result you're looking for or if that opportunity merits the test. Like, What part of mm-hmm. thinking process do you go to sort of figure that out? Well, at this point, the dynamic has really changed, and that's more customer-driven than, than it is internally driven as to what testing we're going to pursue. So just this morning, we had a call with a company based in, in Europe, and they had some very specific testing that they wanted to do on our product, or they do want to do on our product. They're a flooring company. They're a flooring manufacturer. And this is testing that we've never done in the past, and we've never really seen a need for it, but this company does see a need for it. So we'll work with them. And we'll go over a, a testing protocol. We'll put something in place and we'll provide them with samples and we'll oversee the whole thing with them. But really, it is it is customer-driven now. We have such a portfolio that I'd say right now, maybe six times out of 10, the customer can take a look at what we've done and feel confident that even if it's not necessarily 100% what they were looking for, it will translate well for what they need. And then the other four times out of 10, They'll say, well, actually, we really want to have this particular standard met, so can we do a test on that? And, and that's how it works now. So you're talking about international markets a bit. How much of your business is in North America? How much is it is in uh, overseas, roughly? Right now, I'd say maybe, maybe 15% of our sales are in North America. 85% would be outside of that. Biggest markets for us are Asia, Australia, and Europe. Asia, by far, is, is the best market for us. Again, timing is everything in life. And one of the wonderful things about what's happening in China for our product is that they're building with more and more wood. There's been a real emphasis from the, from the, uh, the government there to focus on sustainable products, renewable products, and wood being a very key component for that. So they're looking to increase wood buildings from its existing level of 0.5% of the overall market to 2.5% of the overall market within the next few years. And we've been very fortunate to have the right partners on the ground at certain times that have enabled us to to really be at the forefront of, of these markets and we can catch on to those waves at the right time. So you mentioned partners on the ground. So Whenever I think of international markets, I think of how do we service them well? I mean, do you travel over mm-hmm. there a lot or do your partners do all that? Well, yeah, we our executive will fly out and meet with our partners very, very regularly. We, we need to obviously keep up to date on what they're doing, what they're proposing to do, the successes they're having, the issues that they're running into so we can work with them to hopefully find ways around it. But right from day one, I realized that there's no way that even as well as I might particularly know the Canadian market, the Canadian wood market, there's no way I would know the Japanese wood market like that or the Australian wood market or, or any other market in the world. Every, every market is so different. So we've, from day one, we've looked for partners on the ground who believed in the product, wanted to bring it to market, had the capability of bringing it to the market and being successful. And then we would work with them to ensure that success. And it's been a very, very good model for us. So 
run sort of through a typical sort of type of partner and what characteristics they would have? What do you look for in a partner? What we look for is somebody who's got industry experience. And, and that industry experience doesn't necessarily have to be in construction. It could be in lumber distribution. It could be in sawmilling. But they have some stake in one of the areas, one of the, if you will, one of the lumber areas within any given marketplace. Somebody who's established, has really good connections throughout that industry, and has the financial capability of being strong enough to last out what obviously can be a painful growing period from the onset. For us, for our company, we didn't have our first sales really for the first two or three years that we were in existence. We were really focused on R&D. We were really focused on marketing, really focused on getting the word out there and sales were slow to develop. And that can happen in any market. Some markets take off. The market in China for us just took off. It was fantastic. The market in Australia, really quick to grab hold. And I think, again, when you look at the different markets, there are reasons why some markets move quicker than others. It could be building codes. It could be government emphasis on certain types of buildings. It could be a number of different things. In Australia, for example, they already have to treat lumber for termites. Mm -hmm. And our product works very similar to some of the products that they have on the marketplace already for treating termites. But we also come with fire protection and mold protection and rot protection. So that was a bit of a seamless entry into a marketplace because they already had the infrastructure in place to make sure that the lumber was coated with the anti-termite stuff. So these are, these are the real key factors in how quickly a market can develop and who we choose to work with. Okay. Sounds good. So, I mean, you talked about some of the regulatory stuff that goes into sort of looking for that sort of market fit with the partner as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are some of the cultural things you learned? (laughs) Well, yeah, you don't want to use the color blue in China. That's associated with funerals. So there was that. (laughs) And it was funny because one of our most popular colors for our our coating, if it wasn't a clear, they wanted to have the blue color. So we were talking all about blue. A lot of our advertising was in showing this blue wood. And then when China came along and they said, well, you know, we really can't show that kind of stuff. It's, It's not a good thing. And then I guess some of the other cultural issues that you come across are some markets, without really going into naming names or anything like that. But in some markets, there are major trust issues, just even within industries themselves. So it's so important that you have the right partner who's already a known entity in those marketplaces. People trust them. They've been around a while. They don't have major skeletons in the closet kind of thing. You have to do your due diligence in that respect. But that's been another interesting hurdle that we've come across. The the trust issue is is really, really pretty extreme in some places. Mm, yeah. So, so how do you attract that trusted partner to start with? One of the things that we did early on, which worked really well, was we did the, the trade show circuit. And when you're there year after year and you're meeting certain people, you start to develop that relationship. You start to build that foundation of trust. You know, they, they become familiar with you, familiar with your products, and you're able to give them updates every year to tell them, the new things that you're part of. So it's, it's been, that was really key for us starting out for the first, I'd say seven or eight years, we were doing all kinds of trade shows, probably about 25 trade shows a year. Mm. And 
Yeah, it, it was it was a great way to develop and foster those initial relationships, but also we're not a one one hit wonder. We're not just going to be here one year and you're never going to hear from our product again. It's it's there. We're not going anywhere, kind of thing. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So now you said that this is what was happening when you first started. What does it look like now? What's what's working for you right now? Well, now because of the projects that we're part of, we get calls weekly from different areas, different different countries, different parts of the world, looking for product, looking for information. And a lot of them are looking for licensing abilities. So one of the things that we've done with our partners is that we provide them with exclusive licenses. So for a particular territory, they would be the only ones who could purchase and market the product in that region. And they would have they'd have to meet certain sales targets to keep that exclusivity in place, but nothing nothing really exceptional, just to make sure that they were that they were doing what a bare minimum to to develop the market. And what we found in the past is that's a really good way to do it because you don't have a partner who's worried about having the license revoked at any moment. And there's a gradual buildup over the years to a certain level. And when the market is properly developed, what happens is it becomes a self-sustaining business for, for the customer because the more people learn about the product, then word spreads through the industry and they get increased orders over the over the six-year period of the initial start of, of our licensing agreement. Mm. So what sort of duration do you usually target with those exclusivities? Do you go shorter term or do you go a few years out? Like what's your mindset when it comes to these uh, licenses? Well, it can take a while to develop a market. So the way we've always structured it is it's six years, but it's five periods. So the first period is, is for the initial part is a two-year period. And again, the minimum purchases that they would have to do are, are really quite low during this two-year period so that they can really have the time to establish a market, again, without looking over their shoulder to try and figure out what is coming down the pike at them. Like, worry that there's the chance that we could revoke the license if they don't get to a certain point. And then for the next four segments or for the rest of the six-year period, there's a gradual increase in the amount of, of the minimum purchases. At the culmination of that final year, as long as they've met their targets, then what happens is it automatically kicks in a renewal for another five-year period at the same levels that they had reached in that final level. So it levels off at that point, the amount that they have to purchase, and it just moves forward that way. Mm. So what percentage of people that go into this process are successful? Because I'm assuming there's some people that kind of, they kind of drop out for whatever reason. Yeah, especially in the beginning when we were first looking for partners. Of course, we were, <laughs> we were a little bit more, I don't want to use the word desperate, but you know, yeah. you really want to get out there and get the market booming for your products. You need the sales at a certain point. Let's not kid ourselves. This is a business. You need revenue. Yeah. So initially we were, let's say, less picky about who our partners were. We <laughs> just wanted to get established in markets. And so, yes, we had failures when it came to some of the initial exclusive arrangements that we had back in the day. That has changed a lot. Now we are in a position of a much better position from, of strength when it comes to entering into these relationships. We can pick and choose typically between different organizations as to who we want to partner with. And in some cases, you partner with multiple companies. So you can take one territory and split it off into regions and make it work that way. 
and that's what we've done actually in some European countries. So it, it provides us with more options, and we don't have we haven't had really any failures for a while now because of that. Very cool. So you've done some uh, high-profile projects. Tell me about some of those. Well, the the crowning jewel for us is is the fact that uh, we're doing the Sydney Opera House. So we've provided coatings for the restoration and refurbishment that's going on right now. It was, it's a really, it's a fantastic project for so many reasons, but just the learning curve of a lot of different, in a lot of ways is what I find most interesting about that particular one. Because it's considered to be a historic landmark, they can't do anything new to the building. They have to, have to replace everything as it was. Mm. Now, what's really cool about the, the Sydney Opera House is the actual seats in the Opera House, they look like they're plastic, but they're actually, they're plywood that are, it's molded plywood. And it's absolutely beautiful. But the trees that they used originally for these seats are no longer allowed to be harvested in Australia. So they had to get special permission from the government to allow for the harvesting of a certain number of trees so that they could make the plies and, and reform the seats. And of course, everything now, the, the standards are completely different. The building codes are different. So they had to make these seats fire resistant. And that's where our product came in because it's a clear coat. It's not a mess. And so it's something that fits into the project perfectly. But they didn't even have, when they started this refurbishment program, they didn't even have the original diagrams and uh, specs for the seats. They actually had to go back. They were very fortunate that the man who had developed, who had designed and built the seats 50 years previously was still around. He was in his 80s, but he still had all the drawings, all the technical information, and was able to come back and help in the project 50 years later. So the same guy's doing the seats all this time later. That's awesome. But yeah, it, it's, it's been a real learning process with that one for sure. Yeah. I mean, how competitive was that process to, to get that project? Well, we had... We were fortunate in that the gentleman who actually did the seats, he sourced us out. And so when he went back to the, the governing body that was overseeing the, the refurbishment, he came to them with our product already on the seat and said, listen, this is what we're going to use. So to be perfectly honest, it wasn't that difficult to get in because once once this guy had said, you know, listen, this is what we want to use. These are why we want to use it. And this is the test data. And it was, we were in. So that one was pretty good. There are other ones that obviously take a lot more work. Recently in, in BC, there was a project that we did with a company called Keller. And Keller is a big foundation company out of the U.S. And they were putting in some wood, wood pilings for a project in Richmond. And they needed to coat the wood, coat the, the pilings but it was right right next to a river. So there was going to be a lot of water contact and they couldn't use creosote, which is what they had traditionally used. So we had to go to the government, mm -hmm. the British Columbia government, and jump through all kinds of hoops to get our product approved for water contact, which we did. But that process was very lengthy, time-consuming. A lot of data had to be provided and spliced and explained. And eventually, yeah, we, we got it, but... It was a lot more work than the Opera House, if you can believe that. <laughs> now, uh, I, I think on your site, you said you, you worked on a project that Brad Pitt had something to do with that. What's that about? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was in the early days. We were very lucky that Brad Pitt had 
decided to build some eco-friendly homes to help rebuild the Ninth Ward in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And he was looking for some products that could prevent mold in particular and, and termite issues. That's what they were really worried about. And they wanted, he wanted them to be completely sustainable homes. So everything that was in was R-valued, everything that it was all solar-powered, on and on and on. Like it, These were really beautiful homes. And when he came across our product, it, it just seemed to be the perfect fit. So we got into that one, and we have pictures of, of the materials all these years later, and they just look absolutely awesome. Very cool. So, I mean, you know, you've been in this a while. You, you talked about some of the, the struggles you had, but I mean, what's the toughest thing you've had to, to deal with through this, this whole sort of journey you've been on? I think I, I go back to trying, to trying to convince people that there is a better way to protect wood. Everybody falls back to the pressure-treated position. They think that that's the, the cut-and-dry way that you need to, to protect wood for whether it be mold or fire or insects or what have you, and convincing people that there is a new technology out there, that this is something different. This isn't an intumescent. This isn't something creosote or anything like that. This is something brand new. This has got an element of nanotechnology to it as well. So trying to convince people, it's really tough. The old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And fighting that, that's been... That's been the number one thing that we've been up against. The other thing is all the testing that we've had to go through. It's, it, it is very, very frustrating to have to test and retest and know that you know you're going to pass. When you're a startup company and every dollar that comes in in revenue is yeah. like gold for you, but it's got to go right back out into testing, it can get very, very frustrating. But over time, did you ever get close to like you know wanting to quit or thinking about quitting? Because it sounds like <laughs> a long journey for you. I don't think I ever did, and and the reason I didn't was I've got a couple of young kids, and I really do want to make the world a better place. I know that, for example, we could charge five times what we do for our product, if not more. The old joke is, I'll be talking with a customer, and and they'll say so. We, we need to use this for this project. And did you say it's five cents a square foot for coding costs? And I'm like, yeah, we're paying more than 60 cents a square foot right now. And I said, well, I, I actually meant 50 cents a square foot. Sorry, yeah, I'll correct myself now. So we joke about that. But I've ever since day one, because I've got young kids, I want to make sure that this gets into as many homes as possible. I would love to get rid of toxic pressure treatment chemicals, get them completely out of our environment. I would love to be able to protect homes from burning down, protect families, all that kind of stuff. Stop having moldy air in retirement communities or schools and things like that. We can do all that with our product. But by keeping the price low, that's been, it's been my goal to, to really get this into as many places as possible. I don't want cost to ever be a barrier for it. Okay, very nice. So, so with running a company that's so international and you must have really busy days. So what are some of the top habits, you know, let's say top three habits or routines that help you kind of keep it all together? Every morning when I come into the office or if I'm working from home, first thing I do is I prioritize my emails and what I've got to go through. What's, what's a priority? What isn't a priority? Who can I delegate something to? Or what do I want to handle myself? That's the key for me. So the first half hour is just spent 
going through everything and, and figuring out what I'm going to do for the rest of that day. The second thing is I travel a lot less now than I did before. A few years back, I'd say probably about five years ago, I was traveling over 150,000 miles a year. Wow. Being able, and believe me, it's really tough. When you start your own organization, when you start your own company, and it's your baby, handing off or delegating responsibilities to other people is incredibly difficult. At least it was for me. So that was an important piece for me as well, learning to delegate. When did it hit you like that you like you needed to delegate? What were you doing? Yeah, I was traveling all over the place and, and my wife would say, why can't somebody else go now? <laughs> you, you've got a staff, you've got a team. It's not you on your own anymore. You know, what's going on? And so it, after a while and my kids are growing up and missing time with them, it's just all these things that eventual, eventually just say, you know what? I just got to do it. I've got to let go. And once you start to let go, and once people can affirm that trust that you put in them, then it gets easier. But yeah, it, it really was tough. <laughs> like that was the toughest thing. You're trusting strangers with something that you've created. So yeah, that, that was about five, six, five years ago or so that I really started to do that. Cool. So anything else that sort of helps you, helps you along? Besides incredible amounts of uh, caffeine, I would say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about hobbies? What about uh, hobbies? Like, do you have time for any hobbies? Not too much, unfortunately. When I'm not busy doing work, I'm I'm with the kids, and they have soccer, they have piano, they have swimming lessons, and I love to be there for as much of that as I can. So, yeah, if you if your kids can be your hobby, then that's my hobby. <laughs> Perfect. So. Is there, I mean, this is a question I usually like to ask at the end. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? <laughs> Gosh, I can't really think of anything. It's... Well, Robert, I mean, your passion for yeah. this really shines through. You definitely sort of changing the mindset of a, an industry is definitely tough. And, and I think you've laid out some, some nice things that people can learn from. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you so much for your time, Pat, for what you're doing here getting the word out for these different companies, not just mine, but a whole bunch. I think it's, it's a really valuable resource. And I thank you for doing that, taking the time and effort to do that. Yeah, thanks, Robert. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone Anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.